As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the show with me, Justin Briley, theology and apologetics editor for Premier. And as always, the show is brought to you in partnership with Premier and also SPCK, Tom's UK publisher, and Anti Wright Online, who published Tom's online video teaching. If you enjoy today's show, which is going to be looking at Galatians, Tom has a brand new commentary out on the book of Galatians, then why not share it with others? Uh, tell others about the show, uh, rate and review us as well if you're listening via podcast. That helps others to discover the show too. And if you want more from the programme, you can of course go to our webpage askntwrite.com. If you sign up there, you'll get our regular newsletter and also be in with a chance for prize draws and bonus content too. Askntwrite.com. And of course, you can still get hold of all the video teaching from this year's unbelievable conference where N.T. Wright was our special guest, along with people like Tom Holland and others. Links again, all at askntwrite.com. Okay, why don't we jump into today's show? Well, welcome along to another edition of the podcast and uh, really excited to be sitting down with Tom on this occasion to be talking about one of his most recent books. It's a new commentary on Galatians. And I remember during the pandemic and the lockdown, this uh, the title of this book came up a few times, Tom. You've been working on it for a little while now, haven't you? Tell, tell us about this because it can't be the first time you've written on Galatians. What's significant about this particular commentary? <laughs> no, I, I've actually got the book sitting here. There you um, go. Uh, fairly brand new, just a few months old. Um, <clears throat> yes, Galatians was one of the books that I began with um, in the early 1970s when I first started um, having a, a, a passionate interest in Paul. Galatians and Romans were sitting there side by side, um, kind of smiling at each other across an apparent divide. And one of the great things was, uh, are they saying exactly the same thing? Is the one just a longer version of the other? Or are they different? And if so, how? And has Paul, has Paul changed his mind? And I started to get quite teased by that and started to investigate the different words he uses, the way Abraham comes in Galatians 3 versus Romans 4, and so on and so on and so on. So I've been living with this stuff since the early 1970s. And yes, when I did my New Testament for Everyone, uh, the, the series of little popular commentaries, then Galatians was one of the first ones I did in that series. So that would be 20 or so years ago. I think I wrote that in maybe 2000 or 2001. It's the one on Galatians and mm. the Thessalonian letters. Um, and so, but inevitably as well, 
whenever you write about Paul, and I've written quite a lot about Paul, as you know, Galatians is always going to be on the agenda. And so, for instance, if you write about Paul's Christology, what did he mean by son of God? Well, bang, here we've got it, the end of Galatians 2. Um, I live by the faith of or the faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a wonderful, explosive central statement. But in order to get at that, you have to understand the whole of the paragraph. In order to understand the whole of the paragraph, you have to think into the situation of Paul and Peter confronting each other in Antioch and then guess what you're halfway to writing another commentary (laughs) so finally I pulled it all together and um, I I actually found it very exciting to Mm. do this and Mm. it took me a year or two of doing seminar papers getting feedback from colleagues and students and so on and then uh, finally editing it all up so um, yeah it's been an important part of my life yeah just just for those who aren't familiar with sort of the the chronology of the letters whereabouts does galatians fit in in the the life and writing of paul that that is a contentious controversial issue because some people seeing how similar it is to romans in some ways in some ways and then uh, dating romans towards the end of paul's writing career so perhaps in the late 50s have said well galatians must be really close up to that I think that's completely wrong. I think it looks similar because he is dealing with some similar issues, not all the time, um, but actually I date it in the late 40s um, before the so-called Jerusalem Conference of Acts 15, and uh, Paul is in Antioch. He's just got word, that's Syrian Antioch. He's just got word from the churches in southern Turkey that people have come in and said, hey, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Um, and simultaneously, he's been having a confrontation with Peter about whether uh, Jewish believers should eat with uncircumcised Gentile believers, etc. And so he fires off this letter um, uh, in, in great haste. And then he and Barnabas and presumably Peter's gone already, head off south to Jerusalem for the conference. So that's where I put it. Mm. So from my point of view, I think it's the earliest letter Paul wrote. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, the earliest letter we have. That he wrote. Well, Maybe well, he wrote a dozen others that we sure, don't have. But sure, still. gosh. What, what, what would happen to the world of biblical scholarship if we turned up another one, eh? But anyway. Um. <laughs> oh, think how exciting. I mean, you know, it could happen. Uh, when, when I was very young, the Dead Sea Scrolls were just being discovered and then edited and and nobody saw that one coming Mm. it changed the face of Mm. our understanding of second temple judaism so things can happen absolutely absolutely who knows who knows anyway um uh let's let's look at some of the questions that have come in and by the way we'll make sure there's a link to the the new book of course um it's it's by the way it's galatians by nt Wright, the inaugural publication of the commentaries for christian formation published by edmunds so um uh, do look in the show notes for uh, for the details of that let's go to christopher in denver colorado who says this i've decided to read martin luther and nt Wright's respective commentaries on galatians for the sake of putting a 16th century reformer and a 21st century new testament historian into a dialectical conversation because it is clear they both read this book differently and i want to judge which reading strikes me as superior it may be the case that luther has the upper hand in some interpretations and Wright in others my question is how can we move beyond the impasse between the old and new perspectives on paul when we interpret the book of galatians so often it seems the church's hermeneutical conflicts are actually a false dichotomy must we really choose between luther and nt Wright, or should we try to hold their interpretations together in a dialectical play which yields a deeper and wider picture after all as iron sharpens iron so one person sharpens another according to proverbs so take it away tom 
Well, well, uh, it's a nice quote from Proverbs, but um, uh, I'm not going to allow Hegel to get smuggled into a question <laughs> under the guise of Proverbs. You know, this idea of an endless dialectic with A, then B, then a C, which joins A and B together. Yes, that can happen. Curiously, I was at a meeting last night where somebody asked me a similar question on a different topic. And I said, well, you know, John Henry Newman in, in Oxford 180 or so years ago said that there are two types of disagreements, disagreements about words and disagreements about things. Disagreements about words where you and I use different words, but when we tease out what we really mean, turns out we're saying the same thing. Oh, phew. Okay, now we can be happy about that. But there are other things when, when you really tease it all out, we are actually disagreeing. And then you have to say who is right and how do you know and what's your standard and by what you judge. So it's always possible that, not least in theology, I would say, that where person A and person B um, seem radically to disagree, then somebody else can come along and say, hang on, you're just trying to hold on to this bit and you're holding on to this bit. Let me show you the larger whole which joins them together. Sometimes that can just be a patronizing power play. I'm the person who sees it all and you two are just silly people messing around. Um, sometimes that can actually be true, and a, a wise tutor or professor can sometimes reconcile apparently, um, perfectly validly, reconcile apparently um, divergent views. However, when it comes to Luther, I really do want to say... If you're faced, as Luther was, with the corruptions of the medieval church, and if you're faced with people reading the Bible in Latin, um, but only the clergy reading the Bible in Latin, and then giving the usual medieval interpretations, whether it's about um, the kind of rather low-grade versions of transubstantiation in Eucharistic theology that, that he was faced with, or whether it's the doctrine of purgatory, which was massive and culturally formative in the 14th and 15th century. When you're faced with that... Then if you're Luther, yes, for goodness sake, pick up the Bible and say, no, this won't do. We've got to do better than this. Um, <clears throat> it's all a nonsense. So you know, Luther's protest was justified and he was right to go back to Scripture. And he was absolutely right to say that the death and resurrection of Jesus are the very center of everything. And we have to think around think, everything else has to be reorganized around that. Yes, absolutely. Um, where I think Luther and I would disagree and where I think there is simply no question of compromise here is the meaning of the law and works of the law in Paul. <clears throat> because, sadly, Luther simply didn't understand how the Jewish mind of the time worked and what the role of the law was. And he assimilated Paul's uh, statements about the law to the rather fierce ethic which he had learned as a young Augustinian monk. And so he um, projects onto Moses himself all his own frustrations with the heavy-handed moralism that he'd been dealt out under which he had cowed before he, quote, discovered the gospel, unquote. Well, fine, he discovered the free grace and love of God in Christ. Fantastic. But... That's a total misrepresentation, both of the Mosaic law and of the way it is being treated in Paul's own Second Temple period. And I've tried to tease that out as to what's actually going mm. on at the time. Interestingly, Karl Barth said this back in the 1950s in one of the volumes of Church Dogmatics. Barth already, who was a great fan of Luther and Calvin, could see that Luther had projected his view of medieval Catholicism onto... 
Paul's opponents in Galatia and that it just didn't fit and didn't work. And actually, for me, the real crunch is if you read Galatians that way, you'll find Galatians and Romans themselves at cross purposes. And as I said a moment ago, one of the features of my early research into Paul, which has remained with me ever since, was looking at Galatians and Romans side by side and seeing how apparent Um, not contradictions, but difficulties between the two are in fact easily held together. There's Mm. a place where they do really Mm. belong together. Let me say one more thing. Recently, this book came out by Matthew Thomas, Paul's Works of the Law in the Perspective of Second Century Reception. Matthew Thomas goes right through all the writers in the second century who are reading Paul, and for all of them, the works of the law are not the moral deeds that we do in order to impress God. They are the things that Jews do in order to express their membership in the Jewish covenant relationship with God. So, as one of my colleagues here in Oxford now says, it's not a matter of old and new perspective. There is only one perspective, (laughs) which is that works of the law are, for Paul, the things which the Jews do to mark them out as God's people. But now, in the new world inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Jesus, these are irrelevant for membership Mm. in the people of God. So, Luther and I would agree about a great many things. I hope we'd shake hands and and be, be friends. But, on many key issues of interpretation, um, I think history has to win. Okay, there you go. Hope that's helped, Christopher. Uh, not everything can be held in a dialectical oh, by the way, play. Can we just say to Christopher, as he reads the two commentaries, I would love to know how he gets on with it. Absolutely. Yes, do get in touch, Christopher. We'd, we'd like to hear back from you. Um, Good stuff. Great start. Thank you, Tom. Um, So more questions on Galatians here from listeners. Uh, Another Christopher, oh, Christophe in this case, in France, emails in to say, I've been thoroughly enjoying the podcast. Uh, The answers to the questions have been very inspiring and helped a lot in understanding some of the more complicated spiritual concepts. My question concerns that passage in Galatians 5, where Paul says, against such things, there is no law. It always puzzled me that he would see the need to mention that there was no law forbidding such virtues. Lately, I've been thinking rather that the word against is often used to mean in preparation for, which seems to me to make a lot more sense with the point Paul is making. I then understand this statement to mean something like no law will be able to produce this fruit. Could that be what Paul was trying to say? If not, what exactly does he mean by this statement? Thank you, Christoph. Any thoughts, Tom? Very, very very interesting. Uh, Obviously, I discussed that in the commentary, not this particular question, because I've never quite heard it put that way before. And uh, I was puzzled by the question when you sent it to me before. So I checked in one or two dictionaries and so on. And uh, yes, the Greek word kata, which is normally here translated against, does have quite a range of meanings. But actually, I think um, the, the idea that it's in preparation for such things, there is no law, um, that would create more problems than it would solve. Uh, I think the easy solution is that Paul, as he is throughout Galatians 5, is being ironic. He's saying, well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, all these other things, self-control. You won't find any law forbidding those, will you? (laughs) Um, In in other words, 
you can get on with developing the fruits of the Spirit in your life, and the Mosaic Torah will just look on and smile. In other words, you won't be upsetting your your Jewish neighbors, you won't be upsetting anybody, you won't be upsetting the Roman authorities if you're practicing that stuff. But it's particularly the Jewish thing that he has in mind. And there is, of course, great irony throughout Galatians 5, and some of the sharpest things that Paul ever writes come in that chapter, and I think it fits uh, exactly with that. Raj Vengalil, I think it is, in Kerala, India, says, um, Tom, thank you for your ministry. When thinking of the new heavens and the new earth, um, are we expecting a completely or mostly new creation? Or is it a restoration of the state of affairs to how they were before the fall? When Paul speaks of our oneness in Christ in Galatians 3 verse 28, is there an eschatological element to it in that in the new heavens and new earth, there is a dismantling of racial, economic and even gender differences? If yes, then given that gender was a pre-fall conception, it seems to lend credence to the idea that everything will be new. Uh, Similarly, when Jesus speaks of resurrection reality, he says that they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That, again, seems to be a dismantling of the institution of marriage, which was also a pre-fall conception. So anything we can say about these things now, or do we simply not know? (laughs) Well, great question. It it obviously um, relates tangentially to one verse in Galatians, Galatians 3.28, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, but it's obviously much, much wider. I would preface it by saying what I always say about the ultimate future, that all our language about God's intended future consists of a set of signposts pointing into a fog or a mist. And uh, I was making this point to somebody who was walking down the street in Oxford the other day, and there was a signpost right in front of us pointing down the road leading to the Sheldonian Theatre. And because it's a theatre, it had the theatre symbol, which is the, 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 the sort of badge with a smiley face on one set, with the, you know, the two masks that actors would wear the smiley face and then the sad face. I said, you can go all the way around the Sheldonian Theatre and you won't see anything that at all looks like that mask. However, we all know that that's the sign for theatre and so it's pointing in the right direction. If you follow the sign, it will take you to where you're going. So in the same way, all our language about the future is like those signposts. They're true, but they're not accurate represent, they're not photographic representations of what we'll find when we get there. So when you read Revelation 21, which is the obvious place to go to 21 and 22, and all sorts of things about the, 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 the gates of the city and the, the streets and so on, and this is just a way of saying this is amazingly lavish. It's the fulfillment of everything God had ever wanted to do, and he's now doing it, etc., etc. Um, but if we arrive at the, at the final New Jerusalem when it's come down from heaven to earth, and we complain because the jewels do not look exactly like what we'd imagined from the text, then I think God would say, um, you're missing the point, actually. That's not what it was mm. about. So when it comes particularly to um, uh, genderedness and marriage, then uh, what Jesus is saying in that passage in Matthew, Mark and Luke, his debate with the Sadducees, is that in the new creation, there will be no death. People, humans raised from the dead will be immortal. Um, And when you're immortal, there is no need for procreation. And we assume that therefore um, marriage itself, which is the institution designed, among many other things, um, to enable procreation to happen, to enable the human race to continue to move forward, etc., won't be necessary anymore. Will there be gender-related relationships 
um, in the new creation? We simply don't know. That's been a topic of discussion since the early fathers, actually, and some have said yes and some have said no, and I suspect that means there's a whole new dimension of reality to which our present gender-relatedness simply may be a distant pointer, but that's, that's about it. Um, just like in Revelation 21, it says there'll be no sun or moon because the Lord will be their light. So though the sun and moon clearly are pre-fall parts of creation, um, that they seem to be swallowed up as though they themselves, even in the mm. original creation, were signposts to what God eventually intended. That, that God and the Lamb will be their light, whatever that actually means and looks like. The other passage I would want to bring in is Mark 10, where Jesus is faced with the question about divorce, and they're saying, well, Moses allowed us to divorce, so what do you say? And Jesus says, for the hardness of your heart, Moses gave you this command, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, Jesus is launching the renewal of the created order, which is why there he says, marriage is now one man, one woman for life, whereas Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, gives you the permission. In other words, that was a temporary thing, and we are now going back to the creator's intention however jesus ministry is inaugurating this new creation with this renewal of the creator's intention within this phase between the inauguration and the completion of the kingdom of god on earth as in heaven so what we are commanded to do and be at the moment both is and isn't a signpost to what it'll be like mm. in the future mm. that that's complicated i understand but i think the really important thing is that at the moment the one man one woman for life thing is absolutely mandated by jesus mark 10 and the parallels and that the future remains mysterious, but it's a future which will be full of the faithfulness and the love and the generosity of God, implying that faithfulness and love and generosity in the present are the sort of people that we should be mm. in our marriages, mm. in all our relationships, in order to be anticipating in the present the ultimate reality, whatever that will in fact look like. And, and just to bring it back to Galatians, the, the question Raj had specifically oh, was yeah. on Galatians 3.28, which, again, one of the best-known yeah. verses yeah. In, in the whole of the book. There is no longer sure. Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. I mean, that, that yeah. was obviously yeah. a revolutionary statement in its time. But is it a statement, as Raj yes. seems to be asking, that points forward to some sort of abolishing of these different categories in the new creation? Or, or is that not what it was intended to um, mean? Well, you have to be very, very careful there. Um, first thing is that in the Greek, Paul is not just saying there is no Jew, Greek, no slave, no free, no male and female. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, and then no, and it's a quotation, male and female, which is a reference back to Genesis 1. Male and female, he made them. Um, in other words, men and women stand on equal ground in the, in the mm. community of the new creation, which is what the church is supposed to be. But that doesn't mean, clearly, if you look at, Corinthians and other passages, it doesn't mean that gender differences are abolished in the present. Some people have said, oh, it looks as though Paul envisages that we are now all um, sort of theologically speaking hermaphrodites, that it really doesn't matter where the, the, the male-female distinction is now abolished. And then you read First Corinthians and it's quite clear that that's not the case. And likewise, 
Um, the Jew-Greek distinction, though that's abolished in terms of membership in Abraham's family, you have to be very careful how you say that in case, as the postmodern language now has it, all the identity politics, in case you are erasing someone's identity. Now, in a sense, all identities are erased in Christ, but in another sense, they are honoured. They are part of God's created order. So Paul can say in Romans 11, I am a Jew. Now, I'm thinking like a Jew, and this is how it works out. And you Gentiles and you Jews, etc., you've got to be very careful how you navigate that one. And the last chapters of Romans are especially concerned with that. So we, we have to be very careful about um, imagining that... Uh, what is true in terms of church membership and that yes Galatians 3.28 is really really important in, in that respect um, can then be projected onto all sorts of other areas as well you need to tread extremely cautiously when you go down that road thank you so much Tom again if you would like to uh, get hold of the new uh, commentary on Galatians it's available now we'll make sure there's a link from today's show so that you can do that I'm sure it will be worth your time Please. but Tom, it's been wonderful to catch up with you again on today's show, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thanks for being with us on today's edition of the show. And as I mentioned a couple of times, you can find a link to the new Galatians commentary from today's show in the show notes or at askntwrite.com, where you can find this podcast and many more besides. We've covered uh, so many issues and uh, believe it or not by the new year we'll be approaching our 100th episode amazing uh, next week on the show platonism we often hear that term used by tom but what exactly does it mean and why is he so concerned about it when it comes to christianity a number of you've been asking questions around platonism and we'll hear them at the same time next week for now do check out the show page askntwrite.com for more from the show and to sign up otherwise we'll see you next time